Welcome to Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. Hello everyone, it's Martin here. Hope you're well. Well, these are going well, aren't they, these uh, podcast recordings? I'm getting some great guests in. I'm quite impressed with myself, I have to say. Not with my interview technique, that needs a bit of brushing up, but the, um, the standard of guests. And I think I'm getting some interesting stuff out of them as well, to be fair. Um, today's guest is uh, someone I met through my friend Simon Lowry in Germany, um, who I've admired for literally 42 years, and I never met him until a couple of years ago. He's Jeff Wayne, the famous composer of... Well, his, his, life, his life's most famous work is um, War of the Worlds, the famous musical theatre show, um, which has been massively successful all over the world. And it's really good, I have to say. I went to see it for the first time about five years ago, and it blew me away. Uh, originally written in 1978, which is, funnily enough, when I started my career. But what is even funnier is the fact that... Um, on Travelogue, the second Hume League album, we covered one of his compositions, which was the music he wrote for the uh, for the advert for Gordon's Gin, for the cinema, which had an enormous impact on us at the time because it's a beautiful piece of composition which hybridises um, orchestral composition and synthesizers, And it's something I've always been obsessed with personally. Uh, we're going to talk about his career. It's not just all about that. He he was born in New York and grew up. Um, got his big break in London. Where his dad actually was a, uh, a, a theatre musical actor. He played Sky Masterson in Guys and Guys and Dolls in the original UK production, which won loads of awards. And him and his dad um, were close allies throughout their entire lives. It's a it's a beautiful story. Um, they wrote uh, musicals together, they played tennis together, they did everything together. And um, it's a heartwarming thing in today's cynical world. Um, I think you'll find it fascinating. He did, he's done over 3,000 adverts, film scores. He represented the UK at tennis in the Veterans League. Um, he does loads of charity work, although he didn't really talk about it in this talk. He's a great composer, I think, and we, we get on like a house on fire. And um, here he is, the magnificent Jeff Wayne. Thank you so much for doing this, really appreciate it. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Yeah, and uh, finally I get to, uh, uh, I get to thank you in the media for uh, uh, letting us uh, do do a version of Gordon's Gin, <laughs> <laughs> which is now unbelievably 42 years ago. Um, so it's hardly recent. But, um, but uh, I wanted to start by saying, first of all, um, you know, obviously... You're you're an incredibly famous person, but you you're also uh, in the brief number of times that I've met you, um, you, you come across as a very humble and generous sort too, and uh, that's quite a rarity in the music industry, I have to say. Well, thank you for that. That's my and, and um, that I often find that people who are uh, concerned with the 
ostensibly the uh, the the commercial side of the business i i nakedly commercial as in writing for commercial purposes seem to be nicer people for some reason maybe because they have to deal with assholes a lot i don't know but um i mean i've, I've done a few adverts nothing compared to you but um you have to be a special sort of person to deal with those kind of uh, clients a lot of the time but um Anyway, good. So let's start at your um, where you grew up, really, I suppose, in uh, Forest Hills. Is that right? Indeed, it was. I was born uh, in Forest Hills, New York, but uh, I, my actual birth was in a hospital called the Woman's Hospital of Manhattan, uh, which is still there. Uh, but I, with my parents, of course, we lived in Forest Hills, which was... I would sort of say it's sort of like a North London environment, you know, apartments, private houses, but lots of greenery rather than a, a street or series of streets that were um, just all bricks and mortar, so to speak. Right. And Forest Hills is obviously well known for uh, tennis, correct? It certainly is. And that's been my sport, my main sport my whole life. And uh, later on, uh, when I was playing high school tennis at Forest Hills High, um, our practice um, uh, and our matches uh, were at the Forest Hills Tennis Club, which was where at that point, what today would be the US Open, which moved some years ago to uh, Flushing Meadows, uh, which is also on the island of, uh, in, um, in Queens. Uh, but and did that influence you? Did, did, did that environment influence you regarding tennis? Well, it did, but I think the, the real influence to get me going, the fun uh, of the game and, and the sport, was through my dad, who was um, a national standard player. So although he, he was a, a, an actor and a singer and a writer, uh, tennis, literally up until about a month before he passed, uh, we went through our lives together with that as a, a bonding sport. Oh. Uh, yeah. And uh, so w without him, I don't know what my interest in tennis would have become or, or not. Yeah, yeah. And he was an actor and he was um, uh, famous for playing Sky Masterson, that's right, isn't it? in Guy Guys and Dolls. He was the original Sky Masterson in the West End production, having been signed to do that role on the original Broadway production. But he was touring in another musical called Finian's Rainbow, uh, which I actually had a small part in as well uh, <laughs> for a period. Uh, and he had an entrance that he had to make and he slipped and landed on his back and uh, whatever the damage done was he, he needed surgery. And in those days, it was six months on your back before he could even start rehabbing. Yes. Bottom line is he lost the Broadway production. But when about five years later, it came to London, the producers remembered my dad and uh, put him back in that role. And it was the romantic lead of Sky Masterson. 
fantastic. I love that film and that play. I've seen it on the stage a couple of times, and uh, yeah, it's it's a great piece of work. It really is. Um, it really yeah. is. And um, so good-looking guy, presumably then. Romantic lead. Very handsome. Yeah, he was a, a handsome dude, and he <laughs> and he had the he had the you know as any pop artist can get you know a lot of fans following him around and all. And I've got pictures of him exactly like that, being surrounded by fans wanting autographs and all that goes with it. Uh, so yeah, he he was. So this is interesting because did you ever want to be an actor? No, no. I, I, Why not? Well, I I loved music and performance, but I liked what I I went for was the creating, producing of whatever I've done in my career as an originator. But to particularly in the early years, I was playing keyboards and bands. Uh, uh, I was fortunate to start being commissioned to do commercials and TV themes, a few movie scores. Um, and how did you get? How, sorry, sorry to interrupt. How did? Sure. I, well, I, I teach um, writing to commercial brief on a master's level, and I am really interested in in. How, I mean, my students would be very interested in uh, finding out a little bit more how you got these opportunities. So can we dig a bit deeper into that? I mean, I know obviously because your dad was in the business and blah, blah, blah. But I mean, really, you were you were an amazingly uh, talented young man. I mean, you wrote a, uh, a, a full musical, didn't you, when you were 23 years old for your father? Is that right? Yeah. It, in fact, it was because of that musical that led me to being commissioned for the first TV advert that I'd ever done. Uh, the, the musical was based on Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, and it ran at the Palace Theatre in London. And, and just coincidentally, Martin, uh, the subject was very similar uh, to Les Mis. And right. Les Mis, all the years later, ran at the Palace Theatre. Um, right. the, the truth of, the, of me writing this, the musical score and scoring the dance music was pure nepotism because my father was the producer and, <laughs> and he just believed in the little that I had composed few records that were recorded and uh, were released. Uh, and I kept saying to him as I got closer to move from California where I was playing in these bands and I had a songwriting partner separate from my dad, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and I was coaching tennis. That's how I, uh, paid my way through college between the gigs and the, and the coaching. And I kept saying to him, you know, dad, you could commission any top composer, particularly those with big credits doing uh, musicals and you're wanting me to. And he didn't want to, he didn't want to discuss it. He said, no, I want you to do it. He said, and I want to write the lyrics. So we became uh, a partnership. I oh, wrote, what a fantastic thing for yeah. a father and son to do together. You're very, very lucky. Yeah. I mean, I've got, my son, um, his birthday is actually this week. He's going to be 23 years old. He's a composer. He writes in a more kind of um, uh, orchestral vein using samples and stuff. And uh, 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 he's, he's self-taught. He writes um, 
more like epic stuff, you know, that he, that's his, his thing. And he's, he's done loads of stuff for me, but unfortunately I don't have the wherewithal to <laughs> offer him a West End musical, oh, but um, oh. I would love to. Uh, he's uh, just as talented, but I can definitely verify that the, um, the, the bond that creates between yourself and, 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 and your, your father must have been really strong. If you were working creatively together at that level, at that age, you must have been very grateful for that. Oh, to this day, and between that and tennis, and we had other interests together. He he was my best friend, without a question. Oh, my he, God. And we were just extremely close, as you could expect. You know, perhaps in the same way you and your son yeah, yeah. would relate to that. So uh, uh, there's no question. But it was nepotism. I didn't deserve by the the standing that I had, if you can even call it standing, I was probably more sitting down, you know, as a, <laughs> as a composer and, and an orchestrator. Uh, but yeah, it opened. It, it, it won for uh, the leading man, Edward Woodward, uh, the best performance in a musical. Uh, this, the show itself was like a runner-up to Hair. It, it wasn't the day of the Olivier's. It was when the Evening Standard Award yeah, was yeah. the main theater award. Now it's the Olivier's. Um, but actually, coming back to your question about how I got into commercials and other media music, one of the investors in Two Cities was a friend of my dad, and uh, he invested, having heard the score, because we used to present to anybody that would listen, basically, with the potential... Yeah, yeah. Of, of investing in the in the musical to get it on, uh, and he, he asked me very unexpectedly. I, I should add, he was at that point in time one of the top directors of TV and cinema commercials in the UK. Um, wow. he, I'd place him in in around the way Ridley Scott broke through, who I did music for for some commercials. Um, and this is a man named Frank Strike, who who passed away about uh, eight to ten years ago. But we stayed in touch all the years. Um, and the commission was for the Cheese Bureau, and the, <laughs> that's, the actor, that sounds like an indie rock band now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're right. Um, and the, the advertising agency was J. Walter Thompson, uh, oh. which at the time was the largest agency in the world, I believe. It's, I think it's now part of a, a larger group, uh, but it was its own standalone ad agency. So this was, a, a when I say for the Cheese Bureau, uh, the the actual campaign was about as quirky as the name of the, of the commissioning company, the Cheese Bureau. Uh, and all it was, and again, it's, you know, I'm sure you've had experiences in your life and your career where you just had the rub of the green. Something just went yeah, your yeah. way, perhaps disproportionately to what you thought. And this was what happened with me because the commercial started with just a lump of ordinary cheddar cheese. And the concept of the ad was the second uh, you saw this lump of cheese, a voiceover would come on and say, say cheese say cheese louder. And then it burst <laughs> into a theme, which at that point of time, this was around 1969. So I was literally just breaking through. Um, and 
the ad broke into a, a theme that was very much in the in the sort of genre of Zorba the Greek. There was a theme from that movie starring Anthony Quinn that was just very lively. It's this sort of upbeat theme that you'd be throwing plates at in a Greek restaurant. Zorba the Greek, right? Yeah. Yeah, Zorba the Greek, exactly. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> and so that's what know, I wrote. I, yeah, got, sorry, I'm thinking, I was 13 at the time. I'm, it does ring a bell. I'm pretty sure I saw that ad. I must have, was it on TV in Britain? Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I mean, it was for British TV. Um, yeah. And the whole idea was once this theme started, you'd start to see this lump of ordinary cheddar cheese turn into the most sophisticated dishes. The concept being, see what you can do with just an ordinary lump of cheddar cheese. Yeah. And then it come to the very end and the voiceover would reappear and it's, it would just say again, say cheese, say cheese louder. Everything in between those two small bits of voiceover, there was just music. So I got lucky, that rub of the green, where my first commercial was mostly built around a, a thematic piece with, you know, most commercials, many commercials anyway, you have voiceover or uh, other ingredients where the music doesn't breathe through in the same way. Yeah, yeah, of course. And it went on to win. Uh, at the time, there was an award uh, ceremony every year, sort of like <laughs> the Oscars of commercials. And it would be for the best director, the best commercial. And I won for the best music. So again, the rub of the green kept going because people were keen to know from the advertising world who wrote that piece of music. And it was also oh, yeah. the fact that there was a very styled type of music that was used in advertising uh, that had a, a similarity of sound. And I came through at a time when all my background in, uh, in music was pretty wide because I was classically trained on piano. Um, I started scoring uh, music and, and using uh, synthesizers, electronics uh, from the pretty much the time they were introduced here in the UK. So once that commercial became established, and then there was this other commercials in that series under Say Cheese or the Cheese Board. Uh, and uh, it was a time when the sound of advertising was changing. And there were a, a, a few other writers, Manfred Mann was one, uh, with Mike Hug uh, from his own band, uh, which you may know, uh, uh, he was doing commercials. And so the whole style of writing music for commercials was changing. Uh, yeah. So I was, again, just at the right place at the right time. And uh, it was like turning a tap on. I suddenly, uh. suddenly was getting calls from so many different advertising agencies and production companies. And some people thought of me as a more classical writer because of two cities, the musical, or thematic pieces because of the cheese, uh, the cheese board. Uh, and I had a little show reel as they used to have, composers used to have, you know, tape reel, and yeah. you'd send it into an advertising agency if, if they were interested in knowing what else you did. So I had some rock pieces and electronic pieces. So I was getting offers from so many different walks of life because somebody thought of me as a more of a classical writer, somebody else more electronic and 
so I was getting pieces of all the action, so to speak. Interesting, interesting. And it, it really tested me uh, because the demands of one's time, you have to would have to turn your work around very quickly. And I was moving from one style to the other, working to brief, to scoring, to picture. Um, so that was the cheese, the cheese board. Uh, and how old were you at that point? I would have been, well, it was when uh, Two Cities opened that uh, Frank, the, the director, asked me to write it. So I would have been uh, 21, 22, something like that. Jesus. So listen, all you students, if you watch this or listen to it, you know, I don't want none of this, oh, well, sometime in the future. You've uh, got to catch up with Jeff and what uh, he was doing at that. He did have a leg up, I have to say. But, you know, uh, as we say, we always say when we're teaching, you know, uh, opportunity has to find you prepared. And you were definitely prepared. Well, for thanks for saying that. I, th I think I, I was prepared enough. Uh, and I was still also during that period for about a year and a half, I, I uh, went to Trinity College of Music. And I studied like advanced scoring or orchestration. Uh, I kept up with my piano. And one of the things that was most useful to me was conducting. I, I took an advanced conducting course, having done some conducting MD work in California. But it wasn't, you know, the full gamut of being able to conduct any form of music and read a score. Uh, so, you know, I kept testing myself. I wanted to learn more. Uh, because I, I was good in some areas and I was limited in others. So uh, yeah. anything that, you, you know, you, I'm sure you, you go through this yourself in life with, oh, that's a challenge. Um, I've got to see how I can meet the challenge. Yeah. What's interesting to me uh, and hearing you talk in detail about this is a lot of people would take the more formal route and do the orchestration, the conducting, and you did all that. But actually what gave you the edge i think is because you were working with early synthesizers so you, what i hear when i i just ref, you know i was listening to your stuff again and refreshing my memory last night um what is clear is that you have a mass a masterful command of spectral placing of 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 different sounds within the within the uh, the stereo field or compositional field it could be mono actually to be fair it's not it's not about space it's about how the sounds occupy the spectral range and um it's i think you can learn a certain amount of that and a certain amount of it relates to you know different instruments and ranges on a stave but a lot i, I learned i'm i'm self taught so i don't read or write music but um I learnt that from uh, using synthesizers from from the outset, because you, you know you could have any sound you wanted. You could have any pitch you wanted, however many harmonics you wanted. You can mix in uh, noise with it. You could do whatever you want. If you're designing sounds from scratch, you can make you can literally design sounds to fit in a certain space in the mix, and that's what I hear in your work. Which is which is different to an orchestral arranger, a pure orchestral arranger, and from that point of view, uh, following on from that, I've got a, a kind of um, and uh, what do they call it, a follow-on question, which is, 
which, which early synth which synthesizers did you use from from the earliest time of your composition? Uh, the very first uh, synth that I used was uh, a big one, a Moog 3C, which had wow. uh, sort of different modules, three. Uh, and it was like an old uh, telephone operator's yeah. uh, plug-in. And, you know, and it was like a mad professor in a way, you know. A so it, was Moog, it was a Moog modular uh, uh, or a precursor of that. But it came sort of divided into these three, and they it just the, the second one was on top of the first, and the third was on top of the second, and then yeah. you had all these cables that you would just interconnect depending upon where you were going with your music. The top one was actually um, uh, what today we call an arpeggiator. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you if you've uh, ever worked with or uh, seen a Moog three. See, uh, but it no, was groundbreaking. Well, it came out around 1969. And again, coming back to being in the right place at the right time, Robert Moog uh, was the man who took electronics and put them into boxes. And he came over to the UK uh, during that period to demonstrate them. And I, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, George Martin, uh, and a couple of other major artists invested in one. And I did the same uh, because I felt, A, it excited me as a musician, starting yeah. with that. Yeah. Um, and it just gave a new way of expressing yourself musically. Uh, I like blending electronics with real instruments. Completely. You 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 agree with that, do you? That's where the that's to me that's where the magic is. That's where the magic source happens, in that where you can't tell whether it's real or or electronic, and it doesn't matter. But it's yeah. like something you've never heard before. That's that gives me a thrill even talking about it. Uh, well, I completely agree, and that was what moved me. Uh, they were expensive, so if you were going to invest in one, you really wanted to make use of it. But I, th this it? is Sorry? a true story, Martin. I was just going to add, if I may, a, a true yeah. story because Moog, Robert Moog came over and he was just up on this giant pedestal by all the musicians that were there to meet him, to see how he uh, demonstrated his, it was the 3C at the time. Uh, and he was very kind and agreed to help set up in, uh, I was living in London at the time and I had a music room. Uh, it wasn't particularly big, but big enough to get the Moog in and a couple of other, uh, you know, I had an A-track Scully tape recorder uh, and other boxes of things. Uh, and I was so excited that he was coming over to in install what would become my 3C. And I had a place set up in my studio where it was going to be housed and, and it was the studio was sort of built around the Moog 3C. Everything else was there and interconnecting with uh, with it and the tape recorder. And I'm watching him and he goes around to the back and uh, I must have turned away or something for two seconds. I turn back and I don't see him. And then I realize I'm hearing something on the floor and I look under and there he is on the floor on his knees 
looking at a UK plug. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't know what the green of the things, like three, you know, three cables, if, if I'm remembering correctly. And the green That's right, was, yeah. was green, the, black, and red, was it? Something like that. Yeah, but the green was, I think, for the earthing. Yeah. Uh, and he didn't know what it was all about. And so I get down on my knees and I explain and help him. And the rest was just fine. But I just have this memory of this great man <laughs> struggling to connect three, you know, three wires into a UK plug. We have all been there. Definitely. <laughs> my goodness. And so um, this is great stuff, I have to say. Um, I have to tell you that. Um, so when, when did you write the Gordon's Gin uh, commercial? Can you remember? Yeah, it was um, very soon after that cheese ad. Um, not cheesy ad, just a, a cheese <laughs> ad. Um, so that would have been about 1969. Christ, that yeah. early. And it, wow. and it used me, but I was scoring it to picture and uh, it started off with a close-up of a, 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 a glass of Gordon's gin and tonic or whatever the mix was with and, and ice cubes in it. And what the film director was trying to show was like a world away from our world. Yeah. Uh, and it was a beautiful looking commercial. Oh, it was gorgeous. And I so, remember seeing it on the cinema. Yeah. Yes, it was. And it, it was the first um, advertisement mixed uh, in quad. Uh, no, really? Yeah. It, I mean, it was a, a stereo mix because it was cinema, but then, because it was running and was doing well, I was asked to mix it in quad, which I love doing. But that first section, and I don't remember if it was like a third or a half of the total 60 second commercial, was where it was more electronic and moody. Yeah. And it turned into uh, a theme, which I know you know well enough oh, from yeah, yeah, your yeah. interpretation on your travelogue album with Human Um And I, I then started introducing, there was like a, a driving uh, rhythm, a string quartet, uh, and a band with the electronics from the Moog 3C, but it just became its own thing. Oh, it's, it, you know, the way that that is, um, that that was a thrilling sound in the cinema. And um, just so you know, uh, just before lockdown, uh, which was March last year, we were due to play... Um, Heaven 17 presents Travelogue and Reproduction. We're going to do both albums on one night. Uh, we wanted to get Phil, the singer of the Human League, in to do it, but he wouldn't yeah. do it. So we thought we'd do a tribute to the albums because I wrote them anyways. And so uh, that's how we got around it. But uh, I've been working on a new arrangement for the um, for Gordon's Gin, which oh, I haven't right. done, obviously, for 40 years. So we're going to perform that live. We were going to perform that live. And we will later this year if, if everything works out well. Yeah, so when yeah. that happens, I'll give you a shout. And, oh, uh, please you, do. Great, great if you could come down. I think you'd really I enjoy it. I would love to. I'd, oh, I would love to. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, moving on. So, <clears throat> so I have to tell you that uh, David Essex's Rock On is one of my, was one of my earliest singles. And it's something I, I actually played the grooves off. Uh, I played it so much. And I think... 
the thing that attracted me at that time, of course, I wasn't a musician at that time. I was just a fan uh, of the sound of the record and the, the interesting way that delays were used. And I look back on it now and I think it reminds me of kind of almost like reggae uh, dub plate um, effects. So I just, I'm really curious to know, firstly, what, what your role was in creating that that production and secondly what the theory was behind the sound of the record because it still sounds unique to this day that record well thank you for saying that I'm, uh, it's a record i'm very proud of david uh was signed to my label during that period for about five years and i toured with him as his md and i do the arrangements for the live bands and all that but rock on was the very first record we recorded and there was a, a, a b-side which was a, more of a, a straight pop ballad. But Rock On was demoed to me by David in uh, AdVision Studios in London because uh, I met David when he was playing Jesus um, in London, in Godspell. And it just happened that I was going out with a girl at the time who uh, was, she was the understudy for all the girls in the show. And right. often right. we'd all go out for a meal afterwards or any combination like that. And David was uh, quite happy to do sessions for me, which he did. And it was right. after one particular session that um, we were talking about just records and his own recording career. And he had um, been with a, a, a label uh, that had three or four records out that for whatever the reasons were, they didn't quite work. They were, they were very good, but they commercially weren't clicking. And uh, he said he was looking to move on and uh, asked if I was interested in maybe working with him in some capacity. And so the bottom line is it came out that he signed to my label and I put up the money for Rock On and uh, this other song called On and On. And he demoed it by going, this was at AdVision in London, and he uh, went into the studio where we had been just recording and the microphone was still set up uh, and there was a piano that was on the session. So the miking was still on for that. So our engineer said, yeah, just David, go out and, maybe sit by the piano and and sing the song play it if you can yeah yeah and he said great so he went in he went into the studio and i thought that's exactly what he was going to do he'd sit by the piano and and play it and demo whatever this song rock on was going to contain uh, instead he right next to the piano was a a, a trash bin and he went <laughs> over picked up the, the trash bin and actually turned over and emptied the bin on the, of the contents on the floor and then moved over to uh, this other mic that's where he was singing and sat down and used the trash can as sort of like a conga. Right. And he was playing a groove and he was actually a very good, is a very good drummer. Uh, right. So having a good groove and a, a yeah. rhythm was something that he did quite easily. And uh, I'm hearing this song now. And of course, there's no other accompaniment. It's just David singing and keeping time to the feel of the song. <clears throat> and I think that 
helped me because what eventually, when we came to record the song properly, um, I chose to not have any instrument that played a chord. So there's no keyboards, there's no guitars. It's built around a bass guitar played by Herbie Flowers, who tracked his part that gave an extra wobble to, to his lick. And then a percussionist and a drummer who was not playing the full kit. It was, again, it was all about the spaces, the way that yeah. I heard it. Uh, and I had this, again, one of these vivid memories of, uh, you know, it was a, a typical band call. Okay, it was a 10 o'clock start. And I only had the three musicians. David was there and he was going to sing on a guide track and me uh, sort of leading the band in uh, sort of conducting it, no clicks or anything like that, just to get them going. But uh, Herbie, two Barry's, Barry, both the late Barry Morgan and Barry D'Souza, uh, they're in their places and suddenly I see them looking around and I think it was Herbie who said, Jeff, when's the rest of the band coming? <laughs> and I said, and it dawned upon me. I said, hold on, guys, you are the band. This is it. And I said, let me explain. I said, I don't want to hear full chords or anything because what I'm hearing is spaces and yes. it's filling the space with just your instruments. I will layer things on at another time, which will be singular strings and brass, but no guitars, no keyboard. Uh, yeah. And that's how the track got built up. Uh, there's one opening bit that I actually did. It, I can't say I played anything, but I asked for uh, uh, my engineer on the on the day to set up two microphones, sort of apart, left and right. So mm -hmm. it, it's the last thing you hear uh, before David starts singing, and it's a sound that was just. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, went from, I guess, left to right and had a little repeat echo on it. But that that was it. I love that. The, the simplest in bravery and elegance of the track. Um, but you see what, what what I was saying about the, the some of the, those kind of 1960s, 70s, um, early dub tracks from, from uh, Jamaica and uh, where it, you know, the, everything drops out and all you're left with is kind of bass rhythm. Uh, uh, bass and yeah. maybe congas or, or but it, a lot of it has got repeats on a lot of it has got um, generating repeats and stuff um, and also the, of course the vo vocal treatment on that track is very um, that's like a slapback isn't it it's like 90 milliseconds or 60 yeah, or 70 or something spot on no well done that's right. exactly what <laughs> it was I can tell you why the vocals wound up with the music in that sort of feel is because there's a reference in David's lyrics to the actor, James Dean, Jimmy Dean. Yeah. And, uh, well, Jimmy James, Dean. Uh, yeah. and his lyric, that's it. Yeah. So to me, it was something that took us back to a particular period when James Dean was still alive. And I was fortunate to have a, a fantastic engineer who was into sound and understood what I was trying to, I guess, sort of clumsily explain what I was hearing. Uh, but he, he took it to a sound that is what the final record sounded like. Interesting. And so, of course, David Essex went on to be a massive star and uh, 
a film star as well and uh he, he did the number one record i'm gonna make you a star and all that stuff was that under on your label no that was after he left was it yeah we, we had a really great run we're still good mates to this day and we had i think coming back to fun doing something that you're enjoying yeah uh, and if you're in a collaboration with someone uh, if you can rub that feeling off back and forth you you it just happens, you know, something grows beyond it's here's the notes, play them. It isn't that. I think you have to uh, yeah, build yeah. On, yeah. on the relationship with people that you're working with. And okay. David, you, when you talk about being sort of brave to try to do a record like rock, rock on, I have to say that David was the brave one because he was hearing this record and I could see whirling around in his head. What, what am I hearing? You know, the basic backing track didn't sound like, anything that he could was expecting let's put it that yeah. way yeah yeah, so, uh, yeah. Cool. So he, but he let me run with it and um so before we leave the world of ads i just want to say that according to your wikipedia you you wrote three thousand of them which is quite impressive um and uh, another favorite of mine was fry's turkish delight <laughs> you did that one right Martin, I get asked about that whenever I've done, say, an interview and commercials are part of the conversation. That one always seems to get picked up. And I'd love to claim that I wrote it, but I didn't. Oh, I did an arrangement and production for a campaign that had already established the tune. And I, I actually don't know who wrote it. All right. It's just a very evocative thing when, he, when he's young. It, it just embodied a whole kind of world of glamour and everything yeah. anyway we have to move on to um war of the worlds which obviously is your most uh famous and most um what can i say it's kind of dominated your life to a certain extent hasn't it i mean it's been so successful yeah. over such a long period that that you uh, i wonder if sometimes you might you might go you know, I wish people would just move on, <laughs> but but it keeps coming back, and and it's because it's a genius piece of work. So, um, please tell us about the genesis of that idea. Well, it was during the period I was doing all this other range of work, commercials, media work, uh, touring with David, uh, and other uh, projects. That it was my dad who knew uh, how much I was enjoying and appreciating the value that my career had established itself, working with some wonderful artists and, and working for filmmakers and TV uh, shows. But he kept coming back to me, nagging me. He said, you know, when we did two cities all those years ago, you always said you hoped you'd do at least one or maybe two more grand works that you just yeah, yeah. fell in love with as a composer. And then of course, as a, an arranger producer he said and you haven't really mentioned that you haven't i haven't seen you pursue that side of your career don't you think you should and i i, I think it was probably just to get him off my back i said okay <laughs> let's start reading some books which we did and it was it wasn't science fiction as a genre that was the only thing we were reading it was anything that just was like going to be a potentially great story to interpret through music Yes. And uh, it happened to be on the night, be literally the night before 
going out on one of the tours I was doing with David that my dad came over just to wish me luck for the tour. Uh, and he said, oh, by the way, here's another book for you to consider. It's H.G. Wells' is The War of the Worlds, which I knew the name of, but I really didn't know the real story because the only version that I was aware of was a, a sort of a 1953 movie. Yeah, the movie. It's a good movie, actually. Yeah, but it was set in contemporary America. Yeah. And that's what I thought I'd read when I read H.G.'s book. It's not. It's a very no, it's dark Victorian tale. And the more uh, I discovered about H.G. Wells, he was actually writing this story to take a pop at the expanding British Empire. Yeah. As yeah. you could say, it was invading. Uh, call it what you like, but it was an empire for a reason. And that's because of the territory that they controlled and expanded on. Uh, and the Martians were his as aliens were the invading force. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so, so the story took on this allegorical, very, yeah. Uh, yes. Thank you. Perfect word to describe them. And he, um, I felt, just had a lot to say. And what has kept me with it for so many years was that I actually think it's always been a story of hope, uh, faith, and, and love that it's all more on a positive side, even though it's a epic story of invasion that starts with the, the, a, a cylinder, a first cylinder with Martians and machines that they had to build once they landed in England. Uh, they landed in Surrey on a common called Horsell Common. And it contains nothing but real places and fantastic descriptions of the life as Victorian England was. So those were the all the ingredients that I fell in love with. Uh, but his imagination, not just the War of the Worlds, but other things that he wrote was quite fantastic. The, the Martians came with machines that were beyond anything that humanity could de defend themselves against. Uh, they, The Martians themselves were all brain yeah. intelligence and they had uh, weaponry that again was just literally out of this world it, it was a collection of ingredients that the best of the British armies and uh, defense mechanisms couldn't compete with yeah. uh, so it did have amazing adventure uh, but that's the background to how I fell in love with the story and I learned very quickly, as did my dad, that it was still very much in copyright. H.G. Uh, died in 1946. And uh, he left, I think, all of the rights to his works to his son, Frank. He also had a brother named Frank, which he actually dedicated the story to because the background to how he came to write the story was they were walking, he and his brother Frank were walking around um, Woking one day and Frank said to, to H.G., I wonder what would happen if from out of the skies, uh, you know, an alien force landed, what would we do? How could we survive? And that sparked H.G. to write The War of the Worlds. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. and uh, Frank, his son Frank, uh, inherited 
the War of the Worlds. And about three months after uh, reading the book and falling in love with it, and I took it on tour with me because there was no computer games, there was no email, nothing of the sort of the world we live in today. So reading was something one could do quite easily. Uh, and I fell in love with it after one read, having read a lot of different books from different genres. And some of them were brilliant books, but they just didn't get to me in, in my in, in my soul, I guess. Uh, but The War of the Worlds did. It took us about three months to locate uh, Frank Wells. Uh, we, had, we went through a, a lawyer based in Washington who had uh, a specialty in tracing where the rights to copywritten works yeah. were. Unlike today, of course, go on to Google and you'll find all that information in a matter of seconds and you'll know who to go to. Yeah. You know, so uh, we wound up at Frank Wells's agent's offices, a husband and wife team, and Frank Wells, and meeting Frank and presenting what the idea that was in our minds and my mind as a composer, which was to interpret his dad's story, but keeping it exactly as he wrote it. So it's a dark Victorian tale. Don't want to modernize it. I don't want to change the story. Um, and that impressed him along with probably the fact that there was a father and son team and he was close to his dad. Right. So that left us sort of a, a, an indelible mark and very quickly he agreed to sell us all the available rights wow. to the War of the Worlds, which was everything but the, the feature film rights and the book publishing rights, which, of course, had been published long ago. Wow. Um, in fact, it wasn't even written as a book. I don't know if, if you knew this, and mm -hmm. I didn't know it at the time, but it was a, a story that uh, Pearson's Magazine and in America, it was cosmopolitan, but I think it was every month they'd publish a new edition. And it was an episodic adventure that HD wrote, so that like yeah. a cliffhanger. So he'd write a chapter, they'd publish it. And because it became very popular, the story would just continue on until it got to the very end. Amazing. Uh, and, and then it was put together, so to speak, glued together. and It became the novel uh, that it, it became, and that took off internationally. Interesting, and um, just to let you know, um, I live in Primrose Hill, where yeah. where the end of the story is, right? Yes, indeed. And uh, so I often think about, particularly after I saw the stage show, because I'd never seen the stage show before I came to meet you and yes, see it. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, of course. And, it went the, and, uh, and I, I was so blown away. I mean, I can't believe I missed it in the first instance, because I'm, I'm a big science fiction fan. And... Uh, you know the the staging of that show uh, is something else. I mean the war the you know the war machine, uh, whatever the giant Martian machine, the Martian the fighting machine, the Martian fighting machine. Yes, yeah, you got to get your Martian all in order yeah, yeah. there, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> um, that or is. Gonna, or I'll start calling it the Martin fighting machine. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, Martin means warrior of Mars, apparently. Is that so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's quite, that must have been a very expensive and complex thing to construct at that time. It, it, it was when we started touring in 2006, and it's 
only gotten bigger and more adventurous from a physical presentation. Uh, and that's part of the fun. That's largely why I've stayed with it, because there's always something new you can introduce. As you know, technology in, in our field changes so rapidly that new ideas come just by the fact that there are things that you can try uh, that maybe just two, three years earlier didn't exist. Exactly. So I'm, I'm always challenging. And I, I've written uh, a new song that appeared in 2014. In 2016, we did a West End run at the Dominion. Uh, it was supposed to be season and it got extended by a month because it was really doing well. And I wrote a, a new song for that, which was only written for the West End production. So even myself, from a, a composer's point of view, it, it would be so easy to just take it out of the box every time we've toured uh, and just do it and make more money. Whereas I don't do that. And I make little money because, <laughs> because I keep you chucking money all on into the production, the right? Yeah. But I think in truth, we've had so many fans come back time and time again and expand with new ones because I don't just take it out of the box. So if somebody comes back, uh, they'll notice something different. They'll hear something different. And I hope that keeps them pleased and that it's a, a great night's entertainment. Yeah. At this point, I have to give a shout out to uh, our mutual friend, Simon Lowry, for introducing us. Um, he'll be thrilled with that. Um, I mean, he never stopped going on about what a great guy you were. And I'm uh -huh. going, yeah. Well, I know he's a great composer, you know, obviously, um, but you really are a great guy. So I really appreciate uh, all your candid um, uh, opening up about how all this stuff is created is just fascinates me. And I'm sure, as I say, I'm going to show this um, this this Zoom call to my students and, and hopefully they will uh, learn quite a lot from it because uh, a large part of working to commercial brief is about being not just talented, but also uh, kind of amenable to, to ideas and being able to interpret the client's ideas. And so I just want to have a quick word about that, actually, before we go on to sure. a couple of other things. When, when you're given a brief, um, and I can speak from a certain amount of experience, but you are, like, you, you are the, at the top of the Premier League compared to me in League Two. <laughs> um, when, when you're given a brief um, and they are not entirely sure what they want, which is often the case, uh, mm. but they have like a product they want to sell, obviously. Um, do you, do you go away and do a couple of approaches or do you have an instantaneous reaction to it and go, I think I know what we need to do. Or do you give them uh, what I do, which is generally I do a couple of sketches and, and give them a kind of magician's magician's choice. Um, and then you have to try and make them feel like they've come up with the idea. Uh, how do you approach it? <laughs> I, I think what you've described with your experiences isn't, very different at all, but I have to go back to that cheese commercial in an era when there weren't, com uh, you know, uh, computers are certainly not the way technology has moved. Um, often I would be given, and maybe you have, you know, like a storyboard and it's got timings on it. It's got 
good good enough drawings to represent each key moment in the commercial, very much like scoring a movie or other visual projects. Um, and I would do demos, two or three, uh, to give at least the commissioning uh, person or company, sometimes in my experiences, there's several people you're presenting to, usually a director will be uh, influencing his vision to get across to yeah. the composer. Uh, and ultimately you hope that you get one of your demos selected for going to master. Uh, I mean, today, if I didn't have that background on, <laughs> you'd see, I'm just sitting in my control room of my studio. Uh, so like so many people who work now from their own home studios, uh, I've got a, a bigger studio room that the biggest lineup we've ever had, something like, uh, I think we had a 32-piece choir and then a band of about 16. But in today's world, it's so often, you know, a mu uh, an instrument at a time, and you build it up differently. Uh, on the big scores, uh, I would go to a commercial studio, uh, but ultimately it's getting a piece of music that's working for the product. And today so much has changed in the way creatively, I, I think music has, is being used. It's almost like a, a counterpoint rather than going with the visuals. Yeah. Uh, the, the visuals are so quirky and imaginative and like with music, the technology has changed. So from a computer, you can pretty much visualize almost anything. And when you need, uh, you know, a real scene set up in the outdoors, indoors, actors, whatever, um, it all gets merged into this one visual. Uh, and then I'm scoring to it, whether it's a piece of music or there's singing. Uh, so I look back over what's 40 whatever 19, say 68 to 2021 is, that's 40 some odd years. The way music has been chosen has changed dramatically. And I, I don't know if, if you have, a, and it's only in like recent years that it's gotten to me to be, I guess maybe just brave enough to work with say a, a drummer and he's based or she's based in, because uh, I can think of a, a, a lady drummer in Australia, it will do a session for you on the other side of the world, or a, a singer who's got something to sing, but you know, we're just doing it electronically. So even that in the extreme is so different from the only way that you could record in that period of time through maybe uh, through the 70s, maybe into the early 80s, somewhere when technology became so adventurous and diverse that uh, you had other ways of, of working. Yeah. yeah. Have, have you, um, have you, is there anything that you've not done that you'd really like to do? Cause you've done so much stuff. I, I have touched probably on most media. And when I say media, I mean anything that's a creative production, but I've never written a ballet even though some of my music, particularly from the War of the Worlds, has been performed as a ballet. But 
and I, I got very close with uh, a choreographer. And unfortunately for me, uh, I kept getting more tours and things coming in. Uh, it was going to be, and we got to the stage where I was already working on outlines. Uh, it was conceived as a, like in say a, a remix where you have two artists and it's so-and-so versus so-and-so this ballet was going to be Matisse versus Picasso. And oh, it was their goodness. two lives as both geniuses uh, of art, but their styles were so different. And I began scoring and the ideas was that it would flip from one to the other. And they were rivals, it, not just in art, but in love. Uh, it, it's a fantastic story. And I had to put it down and then not had to, but yeah. I had, another fantastic opportunity to tour the war of the worlds. And uh, I'm, I conduct live on stage, which you may recall having come to yeah, see. Yeah. And that's, I think my greatest experience from an energy point of view is conducting yeah. and conducting your own work. You know, I've spent a career, of course, conducting other people's works, being an MD for an artist, which it's his or her songs. Uh, but when you're conducting your own work of two, two and a half hours now, uh, it's. It, I feel like a, a hovercraft. I'm just slightly <laughs> off the ground for two and a half hours, and the air goes out. I go, and that's. Yeah. It. But, <laughs> you but, should do. But seriously, you should uh, consider doing uh, like a proms or something. You know, like um, for instance, Hans Han Zimmer has done uh, one of his own work and toured that around. Just like snippets of his work from yeah. from different periods. And uh, that was really successful. I went to see that. Um, Ennio Morricone, of course. Oh, goodness, uh, yeah. Towards the end of his life, uh, uh, toured the world with, with this car. I mean, he's the greatest of all time, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and um, interestingly enough, ballet, regarding ballet, I did a piece, I did uh, three pieces with uh, the Royal Ballet. Uh, and oh, um, wow. yeah. Um, what, what, were they, what were they? Right, and what were the subjects? Um, one was um, one was called Knots. I don't know if you may remember. There was a book in the seventies called Knots by R. D. Not R. D. Lang. Yes, it was. yeah, yeah. And it was based around that book, which is like a. Um, it was a very kind of. It was one of the hip books that you read at the time. It yeah. was. It was uh, uh, relating, as you know, Brown explaining for the audience. Um, it was relating human uh, relationships in kind of mathematical form to each other. And yeah. I really thought that was excellent. Anyway, we created a, uh, together with my friend uh, Vanessa Fenton, who was like um, first artist uh, and choreographer at the Royal Ballet, we created a piece uh, which was a five-part uh, a five part suite uh, 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 for two, two dancers, uh, which was the... Um, the travails of a, 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 a of a of a troubled relationship, basically. So it was quite dark. I mean, some of it was quite dark, and um, we incorporated some of the text into the into the music as well, which was really interesting. So that was called Knots, and then I did another piece which was about Petrushka, the famous um, um, uh, Prokofiev. Was it Prokofiev? 
one of the big Russian early 20th century Russian composers. Um, it was based around a story that they did, originally did as a ballad, but we wrote a whole new suite of music in the middle of it. Wow. And uh, that was performed on the main stage. And then there was another thing that I did, which I can't remember now, but that, that working with uh, ballet dancers of that level and choreographers of that level, I think when I'm laying on my deathbed will be probably the most exciting uh, and most fulfilling thing I've ever done because I spent three months going to rehearsals every day. It was a, it was a true iterative process. So you'd write a little piece of music. It's like knitting a jumper, right? You'd write a little piece of music. They would do a bit of choreography to it, do run some experiments. Then the choreographer would say, right, I would like to take the choreography to this. I would like to the movements and the, the blocking of it to go in this direction. Could you write me a piece of music in this tempo? Today? So we'd, I'd do that. I'd bring that back. That would spark another idea. And so it was true, a true collaboration. And the end product was just amazing. You know, it was like you can't imagine it um, happening in any other way. So I would say, uh, from your point of view, you need to do some more ballet, mate. Definitely. It's the most incredibly, I mean, I like working to picture as well, but there's something about working with movements of the human body, which is so completely thrilling and inspiring for them as well as you, you know? Um, yeah, yeah I, I, I agree with you. It, it, it's interesting, uh, say, as two uh, musicians here, and you're telling me about your ballet projects and, uh, Knots, which is the one I do know, yeah. um, and what influenced you, obviously, to that must have influenced you to want to create this ballet. And, and I'm would be coming from uh, maybe I'm being literal, but starting with a, a, a story that I can work from and understand and then open it up to whatever it's needed to be. So, two guys both in the same field, and our influences are how we react to something is a bit different. Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting. what makes the beauty it? of art, I think. Uh, completely. Okay, uh, we're getting towards the end of this now. So um, I just want to say you've always been a person who's, look, who's looked forward and, 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 you know, you're not kind of resting on your laurels. You are, uh, you, you seem to, you, you've recently done the immersive version of War of the Worlds, correct? And I'm in the studio that I'm sitting in that you can't see, uh, we are working toward reopening it because like so many other uh, areas of entertainment and restaurants and all, all of that, um, we've been closed since uh, March when the first lockdown happened and it ha has not reopened. So in a way, it's not what we wanted, but it's given us a period of time to step back and review it and grow it. It, it turned out to be unexpectedly a success that uh, none of us who were involved in it imagined it was going to be. It was for a, a run that was going to be three months and then maybe move on to another venue somewhere else. But it, it's ran in the city. It's about a 22,000 square f uh, feet venue on two floors. And it's designed around every sort of um, 
from virtual reality, uh, every sort of technology, live performance, uh, and all built to my score of the War of the Worlds. But now it's reopening, uh, p- pandemic aside, on May the 1st. And right. it's about to be announced. And I've been working on it and working uh, as soon as we're done, I'll go back to uh, working further with my studio team. There's a large team in London at the venue because it's had to be certified as COVID compliant. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It is still there. It, it won, uh, it's called a, a Thea Award, which is the uh, sort of Oscars of the interactive world. And there's so many different ways that you can interpret what interactive, immersive yeah, yeah, means. It's yeah. a very common a couple of words these days. But uh, it's also, was just before we had to close it down, we were about to announce it individually, not in place of, but it's going to have a, a venue in Birmingham and in Berlin. And so each time we would move to another city, we would go back to it creatively and right. keep growing right. it. Uh, right. So, yes, that's something that's still very much there uh, and working on it as soon as we finish here. <laughs> I have okay, a cup of tea. I have a cup of tea, though. Before. Yeah, a cup of tea. You need a cup of tea. <laughs> um, I'm Funnily enough, I'm working on uh, with an immersive theatre company in Venice because I used to live in Venice oh, for 30 really? years, and I'm moving back there this year. Uh, and um, they – back to Venice, yeah. And um, we – they they moved to Venice themselves. They're British. They moved there eighteen months ago. And of course, they've been buggered up by the uh, by the um, pandemic. But they were invited by the uh, city council to to create an immersive theatre experience in a giant palazzo on the Grand Canal. Twenty eight rooms. Wow. Twenty eight actors Whoa. in twenty eight rooms. All on the all on a giant timeline, like a Gantt chart, right? And all that stuff. With uh, I think it's like fifty guests per performance. The guests are not directed at all. You can freely visit anywhere in the entire place. If you if you visited the experience um, a thousand times, it'd be different every time. Because there's no way yeah. you can be in multiple places simultaneously, and I sure. think that is really exciting. And that we're I'm going to be doing some three-dimensional sound with them. I don't know if you know, but I've got a 3D sound um, uh, uh, soundscaping company. I've been doing that for 20 years now, called Illustrious. Myself and Vince Clark from uh, Erasure. Oh, sure. And uh, we've done some enormous installations, public art installations, and this is anyway one of the things we're going to be doing. Um, wow. Yeah, uh, I'd like to, in fact, at some point, not now, but uh, at some point in the near future, I'm going to send you some details about all that, because I think it's something you'd be interested in. Um, I would, I'd yeah. love to. I mean, it, it's, you know, that term immersive, uh, whatever term you want to apply to it, it can be interpreted so broadly. And what you've described is nothing like our show, yet they yeah. probably live in the same world of, creative uh, uh, people that come together to make whatever that project happens to be. Exactly. And we, we use ambisonics, which you're probably familiar with. Yes, I am. Um, and so I've been writing and composing in three dimensions for the last 20 years. And um, Brilliant. I'd love, love to play some stuff at some point. Anyway, that's a, different, 
That's a different thing. Um, okay, I always ask every guest, it seems quite trivial, this, but it's quite fun. Uh, uh, finally, what your uh, some some uh, favorite things of yours? So um, I'd like to know what your favorite synth is. I think you've already answered that. Is it going to be the M3? I, I think it is the Moog 3C, even though I've worked with my studio is just piled high with different ones, maybe because of the emotion that I attach yeah, Moog 3C was my first one. Uh, it, it so bad from a technical point of view compared to what we would yeah, both yeah. be so familiar with. But yeah, I'll I'll stick with the Moog 3C. Excellent. Um, and your favorite uh, book? <laughs> I think I might know what this one now. Maybe not. Well, it it has become the War of the Worlds for all the reasons we chatted yeah. about earlier, but. Um, Cannery Row by John Steinbeck is a favorite of oh, mine. Right, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Mice and Men also by him. Great. Uh, so uh, there's a couple more. Excellent. Uh, favorite film? Uh, huh. Well, one of them. One of them. Yeah. Well, I I would uh, probably pick a movie that starred Marlon Brando as I think it was his breakthrough movie. It was a very tough story built around the uh, the men who worked on the docks in New York. Uh, and he was brilliant in it. And on the waterfront, right? On the waterfront. Sorry, I just, just realized I didn't say the name of the book <laughs> or the movie and the movie. So thank the great you. Movie. Thank yeah. you for being a good feed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a stooge. That's all. I am. <laughs> um, and um, your favorite kind of, uh, composer or artist or, you know, whichever. Yeah, that's a, I, I don't know how you feel if you do have one, uh, but I've never been able to give a, a, a simple answer on that because no. there's so many different styles of writing and soundscapes and whether they're pieces of music or pieces written for something. Uh, I conducted as a final exam when I was, before I moved back to England to work on two cities, uh, I conducted the first movement of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. Oh my God, I love that. a magnificent that. piece of music. It, yeah. it is, it's, you know, it, it starts with a, a bassoon at its highest range playing this most beautiful melody which was already sort of a groundbreaking concept because a bassoon would be down yeah. below. Yeah. In fact, yeah. in the War of the Worlds, yeah. I have um, a group of instruments because other than the strings and the band work of which several were, a lot of them were computers or synths, um, but I had sounds that would come to be like a bassoon or other woodwind instruments but done electronically, and I gave them a group name of Oons. So there is, <laughs> if you were to see my original handwritten scores or even electronically now, I have a bass, Oon, soon, <laughs> and so forth and so on. The Oons, uh, that's very good. That's very good. And finally, um, I would ask you what your favorite visual artist is. Do you, when you say a visual artist, do you mean... Well, I mean a painter or a sculptor or a... Yeah, got it. Or an installation artist, whatever. 
Well, there, there have been so many newer ways of interpreting art, again, with because technology or the way our minds have been opened up to, uh, you know, the way art is created. But um, I think I, I probably would stick to um, Picasso and uh, Matisse, quite different in their expression of art, uh, Matisse being beautiful and delicate and Picasso stark and certainly in, in his main area of how he's known. Uh, and they always move me whenever I've had a look. When I was working on this ballet, I was looking at and reading books about them. So uh, maybe that's why they come to mind to give you an answer to. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. And uh, just, just before we go, I actually did uh, a massive installation at the National Portrait Gallery uh, to celebrate uh, the anniversary of Picasso's birth. Uh, and um, I had lots of different uh, rooms with three-dimensional sound in them and different artists performing. We had ballet, we had uh, uh, singers, we had dancers, we had DJs, we had... It was a late night uh, thing, and we had 5,000 people turn up. We had to lock the doors in the end. It was so popular, oh. and it was called Everything You Can Imagine Is Real, which is one of his quotes, which is such a beautiful thing, isn't it? Yeah. What, what a fantastic uh, project for you to work on. Oh, it was, it was amazing. I earned no money out of it, of course, but uh, I was so thrilled. And one thing that I found out during that research is he took – Picasso took three years off from painting – completely to become a poet and and, and a librettist yeah and a librettist and his uh, so what i actually got i got a famous um comedian who's a friend of mine called john shuttleworth um who you may have heard of but anyway um uh, who i got him to read some of this amazing uh poetry uh, surrealist poetry which was completely bonkers. I mean, it was out there, beyond out there, and having a comedian reading it was even <laughs> weirder. So we projected that like forty foot high on the on the entrance hall um, uh, 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 foyer. Uh, I'd love to do something like that again. I'm I'm uh, quite. I, I spend quite a lot of time doing curating big scale projects with multiple artists, and maybe that's something we could collaborate on in the future. That'd be that'd be fun. That sounds really interesting. I, yeah, I. I know a lot about your career i didn't know that part of it though that's amazing yeah. oh yeah i can bore you to death when we eventually no, get when we when we eventually uh, have the ability to meet in either a pub or a restaurant we should have a proper talk okay that sounds great what, what an absolute pleasure this has been um in fact i'm loving it so much i'm thinking i'm wondering whether we should make this a uh, we should split it in the middle and make it two parts because it's gone on quite a long time and there's a lot of meat on the, this particular yeah, bone that sounds great to me just let me yeah. know cool man thanks so much uh love you jeff and i'll see you really soon thanks, Bart, and uh, happy birthday to your son oh thank you cheers bye all the best well that was quite a trip wasn't it Jeff's such a lovely guy, um, a genuine, empathetic type, and that counts for a lot in this world, I think, of uh, writing to commercial brief. But also, he's a proper artist, you know, he's a proper composer. Um, 
And I've got a lot of respect for people who can combine the worlds of commerce and keeping their integrity of being a composer. Anyway, some more emails. Simon Stewart, very quick line to say how much I'm enjoying the podcast. I'll admit I wasn't sure about the format at first, but it's really taken off. The Tony Visconti episode in particular was absolute joy, passionate, authentic, and a heap of fun. In terms of future guests, I'm delighted to hear that Hannah Peel is a possibility. I am going to be recording Hannah soon. Uh, so that's coming up. Other contemporary electronic musicians who I think could be fascinating. Floating points, I agree, I love that. Uh, Jane Weaver. And one or all of the incomparably wonderful Haiku Salu. No idea who they are, but I shall look it up. <clears throat> um, Norman Cook. Hi Martin, Norman Cook here. No, not that one. I'm a lifelong admirer of your work from the future Human League BEF and Hemma 17. Thank you. I want to recommend a Brighton-based band called Mirrors. Uh, their album Lights and Offerings, this looks like a plug to me, was recorded, I believe, on vintage analog synths. I'll bear it in mind for the uh, new band slot uh, or episode. Uh, supported OMD on many tours. Thank you, Norman. Andrew Searson. Hi, Martin. Hope you're well. Loving the podcast. Electronically yours. I've recently bought Penthouse and Pavement on vinyl. Amazing. May I suggest a guest? Robin Taylor Firth from the band Olive, who is from Sheffield. I lived in the same village as him in Madrid. He's still working with Nightmares on Wax and did a brilliant piece of work, Bud Nubak, which is an electronic take on Cuban dub. Oh, I see. It's kind of a palindrome, isn't it? Or backwards, anyway. He still returns to Sheffield frequently. Okay, I'll have a look at that. Martin from Sydney, Australia. Hi, Martin. I recently sent you a list of suggested guests, but that was before Tony Visconti. I'm stunned by the calibre of stars you're attracting. Tony Visconti is without doubt one of my all-time favourite producers. You really raised the bar now, but hell... Where do you go from here? I'm telling you, these will make seriously good TV documentaries, augmented with music clips, etc. I love John Fox, such an eloquent speaker. I could listen to him talk all day. Would still like to hear from Bob Last. Yeah, he's gone off radar. He agreed to do it. We had a date in the diary and he said, oh no, I'm really busy. I've got to postpone and he's not come back to me yet. So, But I do, I do like Bob. Wendy Carlos, another vote for Wendy Carlos. She's still alive. How many careers did she inspire? Glyn Johns, engineer, producer, Beatles, Small Faces, The Who, Hendrix. <clears throat> Not connected to electronic music, unfortunately. I so look forward to your podcasts. You are doing something right. Thank you. I forgot to ask everyone, how are you all um, in these very strange times? Hopefully things are going to get a little bit better in the near future. Um, I certainly am looking forward to spring. And um, coming out of this relentless grey gloom that we find ourselves in. I've run out of places to walk to within striking distance of my house in Primrose Hill now. It's lovely. I'm lucky. I've got Regent's Park and Primrose Hill on the doorstep. Hampstead not that far away. Uh, Hampstead Heath. And uh, I can walk around the centre of town. But, you know, after a year of doing this shit, it's starting to get on my nerves now. Um 
and we're in the middle of selling our house. So new adventures await. New adventures await. Um, I hope you're all staying sane. I think that's the most important thing, and obviously not ill with COVID. But, um, you know, be nice to people. This is my advice. Think about them. Everybody's going through a hard time, uh, apart from maybe some people who are at the very top um, and they don't give a shit about us. So look after your neighbours. Try and make the most. Try and make a positive out of the whole bunch of negatives that we've got at the moment. Be nice to people. Please think about the anguish that they may be going through. Um, I will look forward to seeing you next time. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Next week's, who knows? But there's loads of great guests coming up, so looking forward to seeing you soon. Bye!